Now, friends, we come today to this fourth chapter of Jeremiah. Now, during that period, Josiah the king was carrying on a period of reformation, but it was before the Word of God had been found, and therefore it was reformation and not revival. And it was very shallow indeed, that which was taking place. I think Josiah was very sincere, and he was certainly moved toward God, and he listened to Jeremiah. I have a notion he and Jeremiah were very good friends. They were young men at that particular time. But as far as the people were concerned, they were not turning to God in any genuine sort of a way at all. And though Jeremiah had struck home in some of the prophecies that he had given. And now we are in this second message that he gave, and it began in the third chapter, verse 6. And he dealt with the backsliding of the people, and it continues through chapter 6. Now, it's our desire today to hit the high points here. God made it very clear back in the third chapter... He said there, you will remember, in the 10th verse, and let me read that. He says, "...and yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord." There was a turning to God that was merely outward. They were going to church, that is, going to the temple, and they were going through the ritual. But The heart was not in it at all, but this was something that Josiah was attempting to produce. Now, that reveals today that you can have reformation without revival, but reformation without revival is never genuine at all. And I'm not quite sure that what we are seeing today around us is revival. In fact, I don't think it is revival now. I think this renewed interest in the Word of God could become revival, but it's not now. And it remains to be seen, and I think in the very near future, how genuine it really is. So whether it's merely an experience jag that a great many people are on, or whether they are genuinely converted or not, it remains to be seen. And therefore, what we have here is the fact that it was not a real turning to God, but it was enough to prompt Jeremiah to give this tremendous prophecy that we saw last time in the third chapter, verse 16 through 18, looking to the future in those days. And he tells about that at that time that all the nations are going to gather to the house of God in Jerusalem. And That ought to alert these people not to take for granted and make it ritualistic of just going to the temple. And he tries to alert them. But, of course, it does not. He says in verse 22 of that chapter, "...return ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding." And it may be that that did prompt a slight turning to God. But we find, as we come now to these first verses here in chapter 4, here is a response of God to 
any movement on their part toward him. He's so interested, and he wants to bring them back into a right relationship to himself. He says, "...if thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove." God says, "...I'll not remove you from the land." if you'll turn to me. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Now, in other words, reformation is no good. You can sow the seed on the ground, but the ground needs to be prepared for it. And there's no use sowing it among thorny ground. And the Lord expressed it like this, "'Cast not your pearls among swine.'" I see no point today in giving out the Word in certain places. I think they've long since passed the place. Somebody says, "'Well, they ought to hear the gospel.'" My friend, that's pious nonsense. God says you break up the fallow ground first before you start giving out the Word of God. And that needs to be. And these people were just going through a ceremony. They were putting up a front. There was nothing genuine about this at all. Therefore, you'll have now in the remainder of this section, there will be first an impeachment of the people. God will pronounce a judgment upon them, and there will be the call to them to return to Jehovah. And then finally, a clear foretelling of judgment. And believe me, Jeremiah will not mince words about that. And my feeling is today that there ought to be more the message of the prophet today rather than the message of comfort. The fallow ground needs to be broken up. We're a nation today in danger. We're the greatest nation in the world, we say. But overnight, if you please, we can fall. Babylon the Great fell overnight. Alexander the Great died in a night, and his empire crumbled, and the Roman Empire went down. May I say to you, we could go down. This idea today that our greatness depends on atom bombs and our wealth and the almighty dollar and the almighty atom bomb, my friend, that's not our strength. We are decaying within. There is deterioration, moral deterioration. And somebody should be saying something about it. But there's very little being said about that today at all. It seems to me we are sowing seed on ground that is thorny ground. Now, Lord warns against it here. Now, we find here, though, in these first few verses, God again is offering them an opportunity to come back to him. In verse 4 here of chapter 4 of Jeremiah says, "'Circumcise yourself to the Lord.'" Take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, they were going through the outward form. And circumcision was a badge that they belonged to the nation Israel. But God didn't give that just as a form or a ceremony. I think that it had a very 
definite therapeutic value. But the important thing was the spiritual side. Their hearts should turn to God, and that was the important thing. Now, he lets them know that they'll come out of the north, a power. That'll be Babylon that will eventually destroy them. Verse 6, "...set up the standard towards Zion, retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction." The lion is come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He's gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy city shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. For this gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. Now, you saw the ten tribes in the north go into captivity. He says, now, Judah, take warning from that. There is a power, another power in the north that God is raising up, and that power will come down and will finally destroy you. And so we find here that the natural man could not produce anything at all. So he speaks of a circumcision of the heart. Now, that is the great message that is here. The first thing that we see here is the people's refusal of God. And believe me, when a nation or a church or an individual rejects God, then he rejects them. You remember when the Lord Jesus came, he offered himself as the king to Israel. And when they rejected him, which they did, he in turn rejected them. He says, your house is left under you desolate. And you read the 23rd chapter of Matthew, and if that doesn't make you blanch with a little fear, nothing will. You talk about the gentle Jesus, read that 23rd chapter. They rejected him. He's the king. He rejected them, if you please. And my friend, you can reject God. That's your free will. But God has a little thing going called election. He'll reject you, and you're out when he does. May I say to you, but he's gracious, he's good. He gives you the opportunity. And what happens when a people reject God? The thing that happens is finally that when any privileged people, be it Israel or the church today, refuse God, and he refuses them, then all other men count them reprobate, refuse, and worthless. That is the thing that you'll notice through this entire section here. These are the three steps. The people refused God, and it concludes on that note. Now, any people who give a pretense of being a follower of the living and true God, as the church does today, and you hear the expression quite often today, we are a Christian nation. I say we're not a Christian nation. We're as heathen as Russia is. Now, don't say that we're not, because we're in that kind of a position. And there's no emphasis today on the Word of God anywhere. And one of the boys here in the office showed me this article in the Reader's Digest some time ago. I don't take it, but I pick up a copy every now and then at the doctor's office or on an airplane that's the way a Scotchman keeps from subscribing to a magazine. And so he gave me this one. 
And the title of the article is, The Book Almost Nobody Reads. Well, you know who they're talking about, the Bible. And I agree with that title. But listen to this, and I don't agree with this. In short, one way to describe the Bible, written by many different hands over a period of 3,000 years and more, would be to say that it is a disorderly collection of 60-odd books which are often tedious, barbaric, obscure, and teeming with contradictions and inconsistencies. It is a swarming compost of a book, an Irish stew of poetry, and propaganda, law and legalism, myth and murk, history and hysteria. And my friend, I want to say that that is a lie. That is not true at all. And the man that wrote this has written an article, and he apparently knows nothing about the content of the Word of God. I wish he'd follow the five-year program. I say to you today that we are in the same kind of position that these people were in. And Jeremiah is making it very clear to them that when people reject God and have made a pretense of following him, then the world rejects them. And by the way, we are not loved throughout the world today. After World War II, we were the most pious people that you've ever seen. We were going to bring democracy to the world. Well, do you want to bring lawlessness into the trails of the jungle as there is today on the streets of Los Angeles? Why, my friend, may I say to you, A missionary said to me, it's safer to walk the trails, the jungle trails in Africa. And another man says, it's safer to go into the Amazon in South America than it is to go into our cities today. Is that the kind of a civilization we're taking today? And we are a despised people. God said it'd be that way. You can't pretend to be a God-fearing people and then to be hypocritical about it as we have as a nation, and then expect the world to look up to us. They look down upon us, and rightly so, my beloved, God has ordered it that way. Now, I know that's not popular, and Jeremiah wasn't very popular in his day either, and I don't expect to win the popularity contest. Chamber of Commerce has never invited me in and given me a cup saying I'm the man of the year. They think that they'd like to give me the boot, by the way, or something else. I say to you today, friends, that we have in this tremendous book here the fact that these people refuse God. And all the way through this section, you will find that again and again he mentions the fact they have refused. They have refused. And we have it in this chapter here, as we've seen Now, let me lift out the high points as we go through now the remainder of this discourse. In chapter 4, verse 22, For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. The thing that's quite interesting today, that Government uses what they call the intellectuals, and I think Franklin Roosevelt started this with the brain trust. And the idea is to go to Harvard and get some of the boys with high IQs. We are today wise 
in doing evil. Oh, we have been clever cookies throughout the world today. We're big business. We're big everything. But the interesting thing is we're not very big on righteousness. We're not very big today as those that know God. And God says we pretend to know him and we don't know him. And that's what Jeremiah is saying to his people back there, that these people, they're foolish. They say they know God. And this man's written this article about the Bible. I don't think he's competent to write an article about the Bible any more than I'm competent to write an article on the congressional record. I don't know much about it. Or to write an article on the Smithsonian Institute. I can't write on that. And I insist that these famous people, intellectuals on the outside, are not capable really to write on the Word of God. That's the important thing. They know not God. And you have to know Him to know His book. The interesting thing is... You can read a human book, and you don't need to know the author. He's a human being. But my friend, if you're going to know this book, you better know the author. <laughs> and you better have him as your teacher, because none of us can teach. Only the Spirit of God can make it real. Oh, this is such a tremendous message. It's under our skin, doesn't it? Verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, "...run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, if ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it." You remember old Diogenes, the Greek philosopher, went through Athens with a lantern, asked him, what's he looking for? He says, I'm looking for an honest man. Never did find him. I think you'd have that trouble in Los Angeles. Maybe in your town, you'd have that same kind of trouble. But this is a revelation of something. Why didn't Abraham keep praying for Sodom and Gomorrah? He stopped praying when he asked for ten. God would have saved the city for one. And he had to get that one out of the city. And he got a lot out before he could destroy the city. This is a tremendous message. Now, listen how he speaks of his people. They were as fed horses in the morning, every one neighed after his neighbor's wife. What's the big sin in this country today? Sex is the sin, but we don't call it sin today. It's just a new morality, you see. But you see, God still speaks of it. And may I say, this is sarcasm of the first water. Every man's neighing like a horse for his neighbor's wife. What a picture of our contemporary culture today, and what a message it is. Now, over in verse 27, "...as a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they become great and waxen rich." A great many kids went out and became hippies because of the condition that was in the home. I've talked to them. I think that would be a pretty good estimate. Now, in chapter 6... Here is the revelation that this Reformation was only on the surface. Verse 14, "...they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace." There was a little healing, but it was like pouring talcum powder on a cancer and say that you've healed it. And there are those who do that too. And they were saying peace when there was no peace. And I hear a great deal about peace today. But may I say to you, 
We're getting ready for, I think, maybe the great final conflict. Now, he accuses them of covetousness. He says in verse 13, "...far from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness." That's the great sin of America today. They covet gold and silver, riches, fame, and the neighbor's wife. Those are the things today that men covet. Now, as we've given these two verses on rejection... They have rejected. God says, you've rejected my law. God says that I will reject you. And when I reject you, the men of the world are going to reject you. Interesting, isn't it? And it is working out in our day. A great nation that has spent billions of dollars. We've tried to buy friends throughout the world. We are not loved today by any means in this big, bad world. Because we rejected God, and God will reject us. I turn over to the sixth chapter, verse 19. And this is all one message, and I'm just lifting out the high points. In verse 19, I read, "'Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law.'" but rejected me and rejected it. They have rejected the Word of God. They have rejected God. Now, when they do that, then there's something that always follows. God rejects them. Notice verse 30, the last verse in this message. He says, "...reprobate silver shall men call them, because the Lord hath rejected them." Now, that's a very remarkable verse. That word reprobate, they've had a lot of trouble with it. What does it mean? It's the same word as the word reject. The Lord hath rejected them. And it actually, I think, should be rejected silver, shall men call them, because the Lord hath rejected them. This ought to be a solemn message, but I'm afraid we'll treat it lightly. Now, friends, we come to the seventh chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Now, I think I need to reorient ourselves in this book, and it'll make this book more meaningful to us, although it's rather mechanical. We saw that from chapters 2 through 6, that these were prophecies that Jeremiah gave during the first five years of his ministry, which means he probably started when he was around 20 years of age. And as a young man, he gave those prophecies. They're serious and severe prophecies, condemning his people and also pronouncing judgment. But now we come in chapter 7 through 9, and these prophecies were given after they had found the law in the temple, having cleansed it under this man Josiah so that we've now come to that particular part, and we want to look at this particular section together today because the temple is before us. And you can well imagine the background of this, that this man Josiah, he was greatly concerned about his people, and he obviously had a wonderful and personal relationship with God. And he was a young man. And apparently he and 
Jeremiah were good friends. They were probably just about the same age. Now, when the temple was being cleansed, they found the book of the law. In fact, Hilkiah the priest, and Hilkiah evidently was the father of Jeremiah. And so the temple was repaired. And that, of course, was a very wonderful thing. And we find now that this man, Jeremiah, gives a prophecy to the people. He stands in the gate of the Lord's house. And this is the way this chapter 7 opens. Verse 1, "...the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord." Now, I should say probably that there are those that feel that this is very similar to the prophecy that we have over in the 26th chapter of Jeremiah here. And the prophecy is very similar. But if you'll notice over there, he doesn't stand as he does here in the gate, but he's in the court of Jehovah's house. He's gone on through the gate, and he gives the message there. In other words, he hadn't changed his viewpoint. And that was given later on under the reign of another king, and we'll see that when we get to it. But here we see him now giving this message. It's in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah. That's the fifth year of the ministry of Jeremiah. And he gives this message. And the subjects of the message are first the temple and the law. And we divide this something like this. Chapter 7 through verse 3 of chapter 8, the temple is before us. And then... All the way from there through chapter 10, why we have before us the law, that is, the book that they had found. And it's very important for us to see this because we see now the temple has been repaired. Book of the law has been found. And the people now in droves are returning back to the temple. It was the thing to do. And they were talking about coming back now to God. And this young man, Jeremiah, he stands there in the gate of the Lord's house. And he gives this message because as he stood there, he heard these people talking. Now, here is the thing that we need to note here, and it's very important to note. Will you notice verse 3? Now, chapter 7 of Jeremiah, "...thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place." Now, there's something very interesting here. These people were going into the temple, and they were returning back to temple worship, but there was no change in their lives. They were living just like they did in idolatry when they were worshiping idols. It made no change in their lives at all. It was an outward revival at this particular time. Now, there came a time when it became a little bit more real than it is in this particular place. But now, it's nothing in the world but just that which is on the outward surface, and that is the thing that was taking place. 
Now, you'll see the attitude of these people. And that was the thing that concerned this young prophet, Jeremiah. And the people were saying something like this. Verse 4 now, he says, "'Trust ye not in lying words, saying, "'The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, "'the temple of the Lord are these.'" Well, you can imagine how the people felt about all of this. While they were running around as they would come, my, look at the temple. Isn't it beautiful? My, didn't they do a good job in repairing it? My, isn't it nice to get back to the temple? Why, this is just like old times. Here they go. May I say to you, but there wasn't any genuine turning to God. And that's the thing that Jeremiah noticed. And he says, just don't trust these lying words that you're saying. You act as if this is the greatest thing in the world to be able to get back to the temple. But the fact of the matter is, they not only were getting back to the temple, they were also getting back to the services in the temple. And they instituted the feast. They had the Passover feast. And believe me, they went through that. And if you would go back to Second Chronicles and read about this particular time, it would be very helpful. I won't take time for it, but you ought to begin in chapter 34 of Second Chronicles and read right on into the 35th chapter. And you will find in verse 18 of chapter 35, there was no Passover like to that kept in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet, neither did all the kings of Israel keep such a Passover as Josiah kept and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel that were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah was this Passover kept. Now, friends, actually, this was great. This was wonderful. But this man, Jeremiah, detected that they were not changing their ways. They lived just as they did before. And now he actually refers back not to the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, but he goes back to that which the Lord talked about in Exodus after he gave the Ten Commandments. You'll find out. And when you begin in about Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23, along there, that he began to deal with life in Israel as it was lived and as people live today. Now, listen to Jeremiah in verse 9. He says, "'Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not?' The interesting thing is, many of the people were going to the temple and talking about how wonderful it was, but they were still going out worshiping Baal. And their lives weren't changed. They were stealing, murdering, committing adultery, swearing falsely. And this man, you see, he detected this, and he's speaking to this, that unless they change their ways, that very philosophy... You see, the whole thought was this, that since the temple was repaired and they were at least tipping their hat to God on the Sabbath day, that somehow or another that was all that would be necessary and that God would protect them. Now, when a people genuinely turn to God, God will protect them. But you see, they were resting on facts that were not facts. 
they were feeling that since they had rebuilt the temple, and you remember, they took up quite an offering for that. Many people had given to it, and they felt like everything was all right. Now, I'm sure you see that I'm going to make an application of this. May I say that I know of no book that fits into the present hour and has the message as the book of Jeremiah does for us today. Now, we came through after World War II, you remember? There was just a little wave of revival, and there were several evangelists out at that time, and the crowds came. And it was during that time that actually I began my Bible study that gained quite a bit of notoriety. It's said to be the largest midweek service in America, and that went on for 21 years. But the so-called revival died out long before that. And the very interesting thing is that it was quite a surface sort of thing. And you would hear this, Oh, my church attendance in our places doubled and tripled, and we're putting chairs in the place. And we have had to build a new building, and we've moved out to suburbia, and we have a new church. And this one pastor that built a very wonderful church back east. My, he moved out to suburbia, and he is packing it out. 2,000 people in a He says, the trouble was when I got a new church, I didn't get any new people. I should have had some new people. The same people should have been made new, and they were not. Same old people in a new church. And they misunderstood that for spiritual growth and development. And friends, it wasn't. Now, that's what Jeremiah is saying here. Now, he says something else. In fact, it's something our Lord used in his day. Verse 11, "...is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes?" In that day, these people were spending the week robbing their brethren, and it didn't change their business habits. It didn't change their lives. There was gross immorality. And the thing today is that people feel like if we have these great religious splurges and we have conventions, and I recognize I'm not an organizational man, never was. I'm not a joiner. A dear little country woman came to me down in Texas one day. She says, are you a joiner? And I didn't know then what she meant. She says, do you join all these organizations that come along? And I said, no, I'm not a joiner, and I'm not one. And I'm not convention-minded. I don't care to go to conventions. Some people love them. May I say to you, a great many people misunderstand that for a moving of the Spirit of God today. And I want to say, friends, and I'd probably be as unpopular as Jeremiah was, this is not revival, that type of thing at all, unless it transforms your life. You see, the Wesley movement, just about put the liquor industry out of business in England. And it moved into the factories, and the child labor laws were enacted. I want to see a spiritual movement today that's going to reach in the ghetto. And my friend, when government reaches into the ghetto as they have today, and in other places there's been nothing in the world but crookedness, and things have gone wrong, we need a revival. And revival will change things like that, and it's the only thing it is. Now, that's what Jeremiah's talking about. That's his message. And you can see how popular that young man was when he stood yonder in the gate of the temple. And I can see him there, lonely fella, heartbroken at the message he's given, but he's given it. 
And it did bring a partial revival. Verse 16, Therefore, he says, Pray not thou for this people, neither lift up crying or prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I'll not hear thee. God says, you don't need to pray for these people until they turn. And I believe that today that there are times when you don't need to pray for folks. I went into a hospital to visit a member, and I prayed for a man across the way. He said to me, will you pray for me? Well, I said, I don't know. Are you a Christian? Well, he says, I believe in God. Well, I said, that doesn't make you a Christian. I says, it's to trust Jesus Christ. And I gave him the gospel, and he would not accept it. Now, I said, brother, I want to pray for you, but not like you want me to. You want me to pray that you get well and that you be blessed. I'm going to pray that you get saved. That's the only prayer I can pray for you. We are praying today for too many people to be blessed that ought to be prayed for to get saved. Now, that's the thing that God is saying to Jeremiah. Don't stand there in the temple there and pray for these people. If you're going to pray, pray they come to God. And you're giving them my message. That's the important thing. Say, this gets right down to the nitty-gritty, doesn't it? This is where the rubber meets the road. And this is where the shoes hit the sidewalk, too, by the way. It's not what you do on Sunday today, friends. It's what you do on Monday. (laughs) I'm not interested in the man that goes to church on Sunday. I want to see him go to work on Monday. That's the place to judge whether he's genuine or not. Verse 23, But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I'll be your God. You shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I've commanded you, that it may be well with you. In other words, he says, I want you to obey me. This business of coming into the temple, it's great. It's wonderful. But when your lives contradicted, and someone has said that some people go to church to eye the clothes, and others to close their eyes. And I'm not sure what that's true in a great many cases today. Not really to worship God. Their lives have not been changed. They still gossip. They still crucify other Christians to their back. Don't mind putting a knife in their back. They still are out yonder in the world. It's very questionable. These people, see, were going right on to the altar of Baal, living the same way. They had no testimony. It's not the testimony you give in church. It's the testimony you give out yonder in the world that counts, friends. Oh, my, this is personal, is it not? Now he says here, verse 26, Yet they hearken not unto me, nor incline their ear, but harden their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. And Jeremiah didn't have many hands put up in his services. And he didn't have very many people that came forward. He didn't have any. But my friend, God says you've done the job. You're to give my word. And the important thing is for you and me is not to be able to count noses today or heads. But the important thing is, can we give a report to God that we have given his word and that we tried to back it up? Now, he says, this is the generation of his wrath, verse 29. Now, in chapter 8, beginning with verse 4, you find him here coming to an altogether different situation. And what we have here is something that is great. In fact, this whole passage 
And I'm just going to take these few moments to give this out. Notice verse 9 of chapter 8. The wise men are ashamed, they're dismayed, and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what wisdom is in them. And today, may I say this very carefully, that we feel today that if our economy is all right, we are all right. Many folk are beginning to realize today that the economy can be all right, and we can be all wrong. And after World War II, we hastened to get the atom bombs together. Oh, we needed to protect ourselves, and rightly so. The Lord Jesus said, A strong man armed keepeth his house. And it was wise. But we forgot that any nation or any church or any individual, they fall from the inside. It's not what happens on the outside, but it's what happens on the inside. And you can't glory today in riches, and you can't glory today in power, and you can't glory today in wisdom. And we have had a brain trust in Washington now too long. We need somebody up there who knows something other than the present godless philosophy. We need somebody who knows God and is willing to stand on his two feet and says that he knows God. That's the great need in this country today is a return to God and the setting aside of our hypocrisy and our sophistication that we are very smart people. We've been to the moon. Who's been to the moon? I haven't and you haven't. And I'm not going. I have an ocean. You're not going. What good is that going to do you? We don't need to walk on the moon. We need to walk in this nation today in a way that'll glorify God. Oh, my friend today, what a message Jeremiah has. And that message is not being given out. I'm sorry, but it's not. And I guess I'd passed it by. But you see, I'm going through the Bible. This is the value of it. You can't miss any of these. And I'm sorry today that we have to be severe. But after all, God's severe. And we're to give out his word. Now, may I say to you that we have here two things that I'd like to call attention to, and both of them are in chapter 9. What effect did this have on Jeremiah? How did he give this message? Was he one of these hard-boiled fundamentalists today that likes to criticize somebody else and rule him out? No, he was not that kind at all. Here is what he says in chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Now, this is the effect the message had on Jeremiah. When he stood there giving that message, tears were streaming down his eyes. And that's the reason that the people later on, when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and though he gave a harsh message, he could weep over the city. They could say, well, they think he's Jeremiah. Because of the fact that he was weeping, the message he gave broke his heart. And that's important. I believe today as someone said about Dwight L. Moody, an unbeliever in Chicago, a businessman, 
They asked him, although he was not a Christian, why he went to hear Moody especially preach on the subject of hell. He says he's the only man that I know that has a right to speak on hell because he has a concern for people. May I say to you, my friend, the person you're criticizing today, do you really love them? Are you concerned about them? Are you concerned about the church? Really? Are you concerned today about the ones that we point our finger at and find fault with? Well, it broke Jeremiah's heart. Now, the second thing, I called attention to this. It's these two wonderful verses. You can actually lift them out. They stand alone, but they certainly need to be put in this passage here. Verse 23 now, chapter 9, "...thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this." that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Now, I want to be very frank with you. I have no confidence in any unsaved man that he today can exercise loving kindness or judgment and righteousness. I don't think he can do it. And I think that history and the world bears evidence that this is true, that you have to know God. The things we trust in today, of course, wisdom and riches and power. We speak of the atom bomb that we have got with one of the great world powers. But friends, we're weak on the inside. And that is the thing that's important. We've lost our moral purpose you remember when we entered World War II and they revived that song they had sung before? The Yanks are coming. The Yanks are coming. Oh, my, we had a moral purpose then. We had a high sense of right and wrong. And now we've lost all that. It was Dr. Machen who said America's coasting downhill on a godly ancestry. And God have mercy on us when we reach the bottom of the hill. And Dr. Heimer, the professor of history at the University of Michigan, made the statement that we can go the way of Babylon because we've lost our moral purpose. Well, today, that's the condition of America. We are in that. And our strength today is not in the brain trust. Our strength today is not in Wall Street and the stock market, and the economy. And our strength is not in the smartness of these politicians, and our strength is not in the fact we've got atom bombs. Our strength is in that which has to do with the spiritual, moral values, character, and purpose. And these things are not even taught today in our schools or in our colleges. And we have brought forth a generation... That is rude and hairy, a generation that has no sense of moral purpose at all. In fact, we've lost our way, as Jeremiah says to his people, we've lost our way on the dark mountains. And America is just coasting along, and when you start coasting, you're going downhill. What a message this book has. 
It's not very popular today, I can assure you that. And I'm afraid I'm not making friends and influencing people. But Jeremiah didn't either. So I'm going to stand with him because I believe that today there is still hope for revival because after these words, there came revival to the land. Now, friends, we pick up our study in the 10th chapter. And again, let me call your attention to the mechanics here of Jeremiah. If you pay attention to that, it'll make these messages much more real to you, and it will give you an understanding you could not otherwise get in chapters 2 through 6. He gave those messages during the first five years of his ministry, that is, Jeremiah's ministry. And that was before the book of the law was found. Then in chapter 7 through 9 that we looked at, those messages were given when the temple was cleansed and the book of the law was found. And he stood in the gate of the temple and delivered those messages to those who came to the temple to worship. And the thing of it was, they were flocking to the temple. They'd given generously to the rebuilding of it. They were going through the ceremonies. They had the greatest Passover that they had ever had during the time of the reign of the kings. Why, David had never had anything like this. But in spite of all of that, all of this was surface. The hearts of the people were not reached, and their lives were not changed. And friends, if a revival does not change the lives of people, it's meaningless. In fact, it could not be called a revival. Now here in chapter 10, as we come, and I want to finish this particular message that we have here from chapter 10 through 12, we have reform and revival after the finding of the book of the law. Now there was reformation, but not revival during this particular period, but it had all the outward appearances. Evidently, when this man Josiah heard the law, and he could see how far the people had fallen from God's intention for them. It moved the man, and he was tremendously changed. And what he did, he made a covenant with these people, that they had to make a covenant that they would serve God. Now, here in chapter 10, what we have is, and it goes all into chapter 11, that the people were substituting something for God. And people always have substitutes for God. If you are not worshiping God, the living God today, and I don't care who you are, you have a God. It may be yourself. A great many people are great at worshiping self. And there are great many folk that worship money. Some worship fame. Some will sell their honor and sell their lives in order to attain some unworthy goal. Some are willing to be dishonest to become rich. We have many substitutes for God. Now, Jeremiah's going to talk about that. Listen to him. Chapter 10, verse 1, "...hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen." And be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. The public is running after the zodiac. And it's got so in every paper and on newscasts today. And we like to know what sign 
so-and-so was born under and all that nonsense. And it's being given out in papers and being given out on the radio and television as if this is something genuine. You see, people have substitutes for God. If you won't worship the living and true God, then you're going to start looking at the stars and you're going in for all of that foolishness today. And I say it's foolishness. Now, God says, learn not the way of the heathen. After all, the astrologers, those wise men that came out of the east to worship Jesus, they knew more about the stars than this crowd does today because they've just picked up this that has come from the pagan heathen world. Now, will you notice, he says, For the customs of the people are vain, they're empty. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold, they fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. Now, may I say this, and I'd like to say it kindly, but it's so utterly preposterous and ridiculous that I must emphasize that a great many people say this is the reason you shouldn't have Christmas trees, for that's what he's talking about. Well, now, to begin with, Jeremiah's talking to his people about idolatry. And nobody had a Christmas tree in that day. This has no reference to a Christmas tree. It has reference to the fact that this man, Jeremiah, is in bitter irony. He's ridiculing the idolatry of the day. He says, you go out in the woods, you cut down a tree. And the thing that you do, Isaiah said, actually, you could use part of it to make a fire and warm yourself, and you could cook your meal on part of it. And he said, that would be a pretty good part of the tree. But to fall down and worship the thing that you've made, and the thing that they do here, they cut down it, they shape it, and they make of it an image, and they deck it with silver and with gold, and they fasten it with nails and hammers. That's their God. This is an idol that he's talking about here. And what he's really saying is, you're worshiping a scarecrow. Now, friends, if at Christmas time you get down before your Christmas tree and start bowing before it and worshiping it, I would say that this could have reference to you. But I don't even know uh, any unsaved pagan in our country today that worships a Christmas tree. They all put it up, but they don't worship it. They understand it's more or less of a decoration. means practically nothing to them other than that. But this is idolatry. Now, a great many people today worship at Christmas time themselves, and, oh, it's what I can get, not what I can give. That's important. And these are the things. Now, he goes on to say here, verse 6, "...for as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might." In other words, they turn from the living and true God, and they begin to worship these things around, the stars, the zodiac. And they must get these little cards. I guess they're cards or papers they send out today, or they can buy, and it shows what your future is going to be which, of course, it doesn't. Then God goes on to say here, verse 11, "...thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens." He says, these gods, they didn't create this universe. Our God, the living God, created it. 
Verse 12, "...he hath made the earth by his power, he hath established the world by his wisdom, and he hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion." In other words, those stars are up there in the places they're in because God put them there. And that's where he wanted them. And he didn't put them where I want them. He put them where he wanted them. And this is his universe, and he's the one to be worshipped. And we call ourselves civilized today. And we find ourselves giving ourselves to that which does not help at all, a little zodiac. Can you imagine intelligent people dealing with that kind of thing in this matter of fortune-telling and all of that? Why not worship the living and the true God and get into big business today? He says here, verse 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. No man apart from the revelation of God from the Word of God can walk aright. The minute you turn from the Word of God, you're going out on a detour. That's natural, and we begin that way. I took my little grandson when he was learning to walk for a walk, and he and I'd walk around the block. And I want to say this. He's a wonderful little fellow. I wish I had 45 minutes to tell you about it. But I want to tell you, when I got back, I was worn out. You know Why? Every sidewalk we came to, he wanted to go up there. You come to a driveway, he wants to run out in the street. When you get to a corner, he wants to go the wrong way. I have never seen a little fella that wanted to go as many wrong ways as he wanted to go. And finally, when I got back one time, I looked at him and I called him by name. I said, you know, Kim, you're just like your grandfather. When he got away from the Word of God, he always went down a detour. May I say to you, it's not in man to direct his steps. Now, in chapter 11 here, again, we have this tremendous message that's given now that the law has been read. And again, I must remind you that after the Ten Commandments were given in chapter 20, there were certain judgments that God gave. And that's been the thing that Jeremiah's been referring to. It's that which conditions life. It has to do with the way you treat your neighbor. It has to do with the way that you conduct your business. It's what kind of social life are you living today. Are you one of these individuals that is emphasizing sex, and there's some that are worshiping that, and there's some in the church that worship that today? I know of men who've left their wives, run off with some little secretary or some little girl, that doesn't have anything upstairs, but a whole lot downstairs. And they think that they still can serve the Lord. Jeremiah makes it clear, my friend, you've gone down a detour. You're away from God. And all of this business of talking about how fundamental you are. You can talk about doctrine, and believe me, I insist on that. I'm sure you recognize that. But my friend, when you talk about doctrine and that you are right as far as your doctrine is concerned and you are a separated Christian, I'd really like to know what kind of a life you're living. How honest are you? How clean are you in your living? That's what he's talking about here. This gets right down where we're living today. And most of us, if we were honest, would go and get down before God and confess and say, Oh, God... I want to walk with you. I want to come close to you. But they didn't do it in Jeremiah's day. Maybe 
Won't be many of you do it either. And maybe that crowd's already tuned me out anyway. Now, chapter 11, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant. Now, this is the covenant that Josiah made of these people. He called in the people. You'll find out that when the law was read to the people, the king called in their leaders and made them take an oath that they are going to follow the word of God. And now he says, And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant. Now, before they didn't know it. They just found the book of the law. Now they know it, and their responsibility is greater. God says, Cursed is the man now that doesn't. Before, they were not. I would rather be, and I've said this many times as a pastor, I would rather be a heathen, a hottentot in the heart of Africa who's bowing down before a totem pole or whatever he bows down before. I'd rather be that individual than to be a church member who sits in a church where a man stands in the pulpit and preaches the Word of God and has done nothing about it. May I say to you, I've got more respect for the heathen to begin with, and I think, my friend, that God may get the gospel to that fellow. This man has rejected it, and God will judge him. My, what a tremendous section this is. Now, it closes here with the fact that This man is rejected by his hometown. Verse 19 now of chapter 11. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be no more remembered. But, O Lord of hosts, that judgest righteously, that tries the reins in the heart. Let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I revealed my cause. Therefore thus saith the Lord of the men of Anathoth, that's his hometown, that seek thy life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord. He says, No you speaking to Anathoth anymore. They've rejected me. They want to kill you, and you don't give a prophecy to them anymore. Did you know that there are churches today that one time stood for the things of God and taught the Word of God. And today, people say, oh, isn't it terrible? They're being deserted. (laughs) It's not terrible. The Word's not being given out anymore. And I imagine that there are a lot of pious saints in Antioch that say, oh, isn't it terrible that Jeremiah is no longer giving the Word of God here? Well, he's gone somewhere else. He's given it somewhere else because these people are going to kill him, which means they've rejected the Word of God. What a picture this is. Cost this man Jeremiah something, broke his own heart, and it alienated his hometown from him. And that's what our Lord meant. A prophet's not without honor, save among his own people. He had to leave Nazareth, you remember. Moved his headquarters down to Capernaum. And that's exactly what this young man is having now to do. Now, next time we'll pick up at chapter 12, in this book of Jeremiah. This is tremendous, isn't it? It's a message that you don't hear today. There was a day when evangelists sounded out messages like this. They don't today. They say, come to Jesus, and he'll give you a new personality, and he may make you rich, and you're going to get along well. That's not what Jeremiah said. 
He said, it'll cost you something to turn to God, but it'll be worth everything you have to pay. Oh, what a message this is. I hope you're with us next time.